Hey folks, Randy Newberg here with the uh, Hunt Talk podcast. I'm the Randy Newberg of the Randy Newberg Unfiltered part. And today I am in Bozeman, Montana, and I'm very lucky to have uh, two great guests with me today. They are uh, both well-known in their field. Uh, They're both from the magazine world. I am from the TV podcast website world. Uh, With me is Andrew McKeon. He's the editor-in-chief of Outdoor Life. And uh, Hal Herring is one of the contributing editors of Field and Stream. Uh, Thanks, guys. I sure appreciate you being here. I, I know you could be out fishing on a morning like today. Be there later. <laughs> yeah, we will. No, it's nice, nice to be here together. This is yep. kind of a rare deal. It, it is. I mean, how many times the three of us have tried to talk about things and just our lives are so busy. Yeah. Last time I was with Andrew, we were too busy shooting doves to ever talk at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. You don't want to interrupt dove shooting That's right. with small talk. No, there was enough going on. We, uh, we let the guns do the talking. And yep. maybe some of the kids, I think they were... Hal, this is Hal's magnetic attraction. My kids ended up going fetching his birds. No right. way. Yeah. <laughs> Do you pay him? Nope. <laughs> nope. <I'm> not. <laughs> not at all. He's just better company. Oh, well, those of you who uh, follow either online or uh, get in print either of these magazines, um, you'll know what a great job these guys do. They're huge advocates for the public lands. They're huge advocates for the kind of hunting styles that that we talk about in the Fresh Tracks TV show and how we uh, try to have long and deep conversations about this stuff out on our our web forum, hunttalk.com. And I'm just going to jump in with these guys because they know me well enough that they're probably bracing themselves for how long how long will it be before randy offends the first politician but what's uh, coming yeah i think i did that before we got on air so it might take me a little while but there's plenty of vending to go around (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh did uh i know you guys listened to shane mahoney last night uh I listened to him many times, and I heard him on Monday night, and he said something kind of profound as it relates to the public lands issue. He said, right now, the hunting world doesn't have any people in the political world who champion our cause. He he made it sound like, and, and I agree with him, that we probably have people who will do a little bit for us when the pressure is brought to bear. But as far as the guy who says over my dead body you know the mr smith goes to washington kind of thing and for our younger readers you probably don't even or younger listeners you probably don't even know who jimmy stewart is but if you do you should probably uh go watch that old show um but uh i thought shane or did and does a really good job of pointing out how political our topics have become and how divisive. I think that's the other thing is, it, it, you know, it's organic. You can trace the evolution of this back to really lobbying and special interest politics. Yeah. We don't, we may have people in the political arena who are statesmen by nature. They're not allowed to do it because they are always being asked to promise things to other people who they can, they can't, they can't, they can't walk their talk. Yeah. Or if they do, they get taken to the woodshed. Correct. I'll tell you, they're getting uh, they're getting a pass as well from all of us because 
of the successes of of visionary people way before us where we have elk to hunt we have incredible fisheries we have all these things they they don't uh they're they're we're we're in the luxury of other people's hard work right now right and so when these politicians say oh i don't know why we have public lands nobody actually takes that seriously as they're driving to the trailhead right that this is an actual threat we've had it so good for so long based on the backbreaking labor of people from the uh, 1900s to now right I mean, it's amazing. Do you think in today's world we could have such landmark visionary things like the Pittman-Robertson Act? Do you think something like the Pittman-Robertson Act could pass Congress today? I don't think it could because I don't think there's a perception that something's broken. Right. And I think if you really kind of, if you sharpen the stick about this conversation, I think there's a complacency among really our constituency, right. my audience, Things are okay. And I think, Hal, that's what you're saying is, you know, we got it pretty good. Right. We do. We're in the good old days. Yeah. So you're thinking then, Andrew, that until something just crashes, burns, and needs to be rebuilt, just the manner in which our democracy works, action doesn't happen. That's exactly what I think. I think people are distracted by their work-a-day world. They don't understand sort of, they see clouds on the horizon, but they scuttle away. Yeah. The interesting thing about this public land issue, and for a while, I've, I think I've dismissed it a little bit as a purity test of the ultra-conservatives. Okay. And it's not a real thing. That, okay, if, you know, if you're really one of us, you've got to sign this pact. The deeper I get into it, I think it's more real and more dangerous than that. And you look at it from, I mean, a simple thing as such as non, not funding federal appropriations for public land management. Right. If you take that to the to the end of that situation, that's a guaranteed failure that can then be looked at as, well, you feds can't manage your land, therefore we're going to take it away from you. So it's, I think it's a big orchestrated movement. Those clouds are building, and hopefully we don't get rained on and we can stop this before it, it really turns into something bad. Right, and before, before we leave that... Um the idea that these clouds scuttle away, you know, that these, these oh, these, these uh, pressures are here, um, it is not 1900. Our population is 350. When I was born, it was 100 million, 180 million. Our population has about doubled since then. If we let these issues become big thunderstorms, we, I, in my opinion, we don't ever get it back. Because the world is not the way it was in 1900 or 1896 or 1909, 1911, 1909. We passed a Weeks Act, what you know, to recover the eastern forests. Um, the world is not that way. Land is much more valuable. Resources are much more valuable. If that's the problem, the, the clouds, if they ever go to thunderstorm, we don't wake up on a sunny morning the next day. We we lose a lot. And that, I think you're exactly right in that, Hal. And that's why there's times when I'm out there screaming and yelling where I wonder, am I like the boy who cried wolf? I, I mean, I, I've, are, I've thought the same thing. Are people saying, oh, here comes Newberg again, saying that the theater's on fire. Right. It's never burned down yet. And I, I don't know how where you balance that because it's such a, a creeping process, such a... a death by a thousand cuts sort of process um, to the point oh, oh, go well, ahead Andrew. I want to get into that because it because I think that you said the word process and I think I think that is 
a blinder for a lot of my audience. It is a Byzantine, complicated process where you have to win at every step. Yeah. And there are a lot of steps. And I mean, I'll criticize you a little bit for this and applaud you at the same time. Take the land and water conservation funding. Yeah. Good night. Is If you're a rank and file elk hunter or bass fisherman, you want to get involved in it. You really don't know where to get involved. It is an opaque system. Yeah. And, and it's a process where do you interject yourself into the process? How do you do it? I think that turns a lot of people off. And I mean, if I hear you say LWCS one more time, F one more time, get involved, but then you stand down and then you get involved again. I think it's really confusing for our audience to know what in the world to do and how to engage. I, I get that question so often, Andrew. I, I mean, out on Hunt Talk right now when we said, where are the the issues, the weak spots, the strong points you want us to talk about? And I, I was reading through the thread this morning where there's hundred and some responses of, I want you to talk about this. Multiple times they said, tell me how I get involved. And this is where I'm very guilty. I've been involved in these public land politics for 25 years. And you make some assumptions about the knowledge and experience of the person you're talking to. And you don't do that intentionally. You just, you you forget that when I first started this process, I didn't know, I hardly knew the difference between the Department of Interior and the Department of Agriculture. And and most people would say (laughs) the same. I mean, most really good hunters and, and good friends of mine would say the same. And so I, I've struggled with this. I, when I get asked this question, and we did a podcast, one of our very first podcasts was a kind of a, a big overview touching on a lot, of, a lot of topics that were very political. And many people emailed me and said, Randy, that's great. Tell me where I start. I, I want to I help. What, what do I do? And I wish I had, <laughs> had the formula for that. I, 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 my end answer is sounds almost like ninth grade civics and that's probably not the right answer but well i think it is because i think these processes stripped to their core are supposed to empower democracy we're supposed to be able to get involved participatory democracy i mean that's what it's called but i think I, i think we come to we come to these issues with this clarity of purpose like we want to make a difference we want to do something and then we come to a wall with no door We don't know how to go in. Well, we get distracted by something else. Paying the bills. Paying the bills. Or there's, maybe even there's another issue. I want to participate in democracy, but oh, here's another one. You do that a couple of times. After a while, you kind of turn off to the urgency of it. Yeah, uh, I I agree. And and that's where, you know, the, the multitude of issues in front of us collectively as hunters, anglers, public land advocates, whether you're just a hiker, a bird watcher, whatever, is immense. And for me, I, I suffered some of what you talked about there, Andrew, where it, no matter where what path I started down, it's like, oh, there's a bigger fire down this path. And, oh, yeah. right. and pretty soon you just are overwhelmed and you, you almost retreat from it. So now for me, Randy Newberg is of the political party of the public land hunter and fisher party. And, and that's it. Right. it I've had yep. to narrow it. And for someone else, it might be I'm you know, my advocacy is going to be for the, you know, left-handed fly fishing, hard hearing, old, 
over age 54 yep. Finlander. Yeah. You know, <laughs> maybe that's how precise they want to be. But if they, I, I've found by making my cause more defined, it's easier to say, yeah, I understand there are fires over there, but you guys got to take care of those fires. I think right. that's a brilliant direction. I do, because I think that focus is, I mean, look what you've done with this one issue. You are a lightning rod. You're a recognized authority and advocate. Nobody's going to question where you stand on it. And people are coming to you looking for resources and looking for ways to engage. I think that's actually a very smart and probably effective way to motivate I can and say to you, I, what I, <clears throat> where I've watched, uh, when I met, we down at the Capitol in Helena, um, this is where your heart lies as well. And, and you can see that when you're talking about it. Yeah. So the, the, I mean, I mean, that's, and my heart lies there as well. It's interesting, but, but you, you, the, the enthusiasm is real because that's where your heart lies. You know where that bread is buttered. Oh, no, there's no doubt on that, Hal. And for me, it, that goes back and to a story. And, and the funny part is the three of us live in Montana, but none of them are, none of us are Montana natives. Yeah. Uh, my Minnesota accent gives that away. Hal, you're Alabama. North Alabama, give, you bet. Andrew, you you don't have hey, you. Hey, it's the it's the really the value, the gift of an editor. I can be from anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> but really, when I say Warsh, oh, Missouri comes I was right out. Say, you right, got to be Missouri right. somewhere in there. All right. right. So the the point I, I I was going down is yeah, and it gets a little bit to that. Uh, you don't miss it till it's gone, sort of thing. Growing up in northern Minnesota where I did, in a little town called Big Falls, now all of 200 people, or 500 when I was there, a little logging town, that my parents divorced when I was 11. And, uh, you know, the, my dad was out of the picture for a while, and my mom was trying to raise three kids as a waitress in a small country diner. I was the oldest. And I, I tell people this, and I can easily go back to that point in my life, that if hunting had access had cost a dollar a day, and we think about what we spend a dollar on today. But it, so when I was 11, 1975, if it had been a dollar a day, I would not be a hunter. I would not be an advocate for all the causes I, I get involved in. And my story is not unique. Every year, there are tens of thousands of youngsters in America that because of public lands, just like me, because of public lands out my back door, I didn't have that hurdle of a dollar a day. And, and that, not just me, a lot of my friends. I, and so I assumed everybody grew up with rough grouse. You, you shoot them out your back door because this, the forest is out the back door. Right. And then you leave there and you go live in places like I did. I lived in some of the large urban areas. I've lived in states without a lot of public land. I'm like, holy cow, I am... I, I, I'm, I'm never subjecting myself to that hard time again. I came, it's funny, I came at it from a different place because I grew up on a farm that was 435 acres, but it might have well have been 435,000 acres. Okay. Everything I needed was on that place. Really? And if it wasn't, I crossed the fence and hunted my neighbors. And that was fine with them. They did the same with us. The private property that I grew up around really functioned like public property. Like it, but it was North Missouri woods and waters have everything a kid needs. Yeah. My kind of awakening was going to places that didn't have a farm field or a bass pond or a place to just go and be yourself. Okay. 
you know, and, and really, I think we all had sort of coming of coming of Montana stories. Mine was in eastern Montana and the breaks and the BLM country near the Missouri River. It's like, holy smokes, I don't have to cross a fence or ask anybody. Or, <laughs> right. This right. is all mine. Yeah. Right. And I, I, I was more like what you were from the time I was 11. We lived way out in the country. There were very few whitetails, and people were not jealous of small game. They weren't worried about it. I could go by with my shotgun and wave at the neighbor on his porch. Okay. Um, now, once whitetail showed up, property boundaries became much more important. And that was while I was in junior high, high school. Um, but I was very free. And you could go on the drift through the southern Cumberland Mountains there around my house for days. Um, that changed with property boundaries and change of ownership and change of a culture, really. Okay. Um, so when I came to Montana, I was in Stevensville. I put my name up at the co-op, and I was employed the next morning haying, you know, because I knew <laughs> how to drive a tractor and a swather and a baler. And uh, so many things. And then the first year I was legal, there was elk that wintered on that ranch. And the first year that I was legal, I walked up the top of Brooks Creek in the Bitterroot, and I shot a bull, which I thought uh, was pretty professional. I didn't get another one for years and years. <laughs> but I was I was hooked. Um, all the things that I loved growing up, and I love Alabama to this day, all the things I loved growing up seem to be found here in supersize. Um, um, mountains were bigger. The elk were bigger. Yeah. Uh, the fish were, you know, the, the rivers were, you could see the bottom of the rivers. Yeah, um, and we're talking about Montana, and to not make this real Montana-centric, you could almost say this about any place in the West with huge tracts and abundance of public lands. And we had the public lands. When I was in college in Alabama, we had a mental map of the public lands for 120 miles around. There weren't very many of them, and we were using every one of them. My, my buddies and I that loved to hunt and fish. We and and we you know we ran out the inventory wasn't big enough, um, and so that that freedom in Montana was it was addictive. I mean it, immediately you say, well I can walk through this to the Selway, right. to another river, another climate, another whole state without crossing a road, and nobody's going to ask me what I'm doing. That's what that's that's freedom to where both of you came from. And however many years ago that was, if you went back there today, would that same freedoms and would those same opportunities exist without having to write a check no or, or know somebody? Yeah. And I think Hal said it. I mean, there has been a cultural change on sort of the, the permission, the expectation of permission and the cultural value of private land since we were kids. There was never a no trespassing sign. There might have been on a few places. You kind of knew about it and you knew, okay, that was off limits. Wasn't a big deal. Now, you know, every se seventh f fence post is posted. There's signs everywhere. There's trail cameras everywhere checking on those <laughs> fence lines. Really? Um, North Missouri is is big buck area. Right. Um, and with every incremental increase in the size of the deer, the value of that land goes up. And I would argue the individual's freedom to access that land has diminished. Right. And so you guys are talking about places that, uh, uh, the hunting opportunity is heavily dependent upon access to private lands. Almost a hundred percent. 
in my country, I think there were a couple of public lands, but as farm kids growing up, we had no idea of it because we all had our own place. And so for the kid today who's 12, 14, 16 years old, he or she is not going to go bang on the neighbor's door as you say walk past and wave and say hey i'm going to shoot some some cottontails or whatever that 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 day is gone for these for this generation of hunters i think it's mostly gone a lot of that is leased um Mm -hmm. that where i where i grew up um there's alabama's done an admirable job with uh some skyline wma is pretty big um, it's it's pretty heavily pressured, but you can walk a long way in the mountains. They've done an admirable job with what they have, you know. But we didn't have the big tracts of forest, public forest. And I don't know if it's as absolute as you made it out in right. that statement. I think if you're a squirrel hunter, a rabbit hunter, you're a turkey hunter after the landowner or the leasee kills a gobbler, you could probably have access. Okay. I think there's more if you look for it than appears on the surface. Okay. Um, but there's an awful, awful lot of absentee landowners too. There's people who have invested in that land for whatever reason. It's also good ag country. Right. I mean, it's productive, valuable land. They don't necessarily live there. They're not part of the community. So actually finding them to do the right thing and ask can be pretty difficult in some, in a lot of rural America. Right. Yeah. In Montana, that's a very common thing right. also. And the reason I'm asking this is I'm, I'm going to connect two dots here. Um, well, the first dot is the National Shooting Sports Foundation has done studies. Uh, I believe the, the study was done in 2009 or 10 that asked, why do people either quit hunting? They came from a family where they should be a hunter, but they didn't get into hunting, or they're just hunting less. And there were a long list of options of what you could list as your reason for doing so. The, the top reason always, the one that always got the most votes, was lack of accessible places to hunt. And so it gets me to this public land argument. If in the West, the one other uh, study that uh, NSSF funded was about public versus private uh, reliance for your lands for hunting. West of the Great Plains, every state, where the hunters hunt, over 70% of them rely on public lands. So I, I'm trying, and this is where you see Randy get frustrated and start calling politicians names that maybe he will regret a week later or a minute later, but that's not a big dot to connect to say, oh, I, I'm, yeah, I'm in favor of you guys, you, you hunters and you gun owners, but oh, by the way, I want to get rid of or I want to, starve the agencies that manage your lands, blah, blah, blah. There, it's such a tight connection in America right now when we have the evidence and studies that say lack of places to hunt is the number one reason for this, but yet we're not, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't say not, you, you walk around the next corner and somebody's trying to get rid of these public lands. Let me see if I understand what you're saying. I mean, if you really want to be provocative, I'm going to ask you to. Okay. Are you saying that it's a that there is a deliberate attempt to reduce the number of users of public land so that that public land can will be devalued? There won't be an advocacy group so that it can then be used for something else. Yes, I okay. am saying that. That's we what are, I thought we, I heard, and we, I think that's right. I mean, I think that's we are considered that's obstructionists. Profound. Yeah. Well, the the American middle class has been the greatest obstacle to that kind of thing for forever. 
Right. As the, as the power of the middle class declines, you get a lot less obstructionists out there because, as, as in other countries throughout the world, you're working too hard to obstruct yeah. the guys who got big plans of, for your for your assets. Yeah. Um, the uh, what what I I don't know. I don't, I'm not a conspiracy guy. I, I'm, I believe that effect is more important than intent. I think that what's happening perhaps is a an evolution of people who have less time to do things and less they're less obstructionist. Um, one thing I can point to that's for real though is the strangling of these budgets for public land management. And for then sure. you say it's as if you're strangling a person. And or let's say you've got your house and you don't put any, you take all the money and spend it on something else, and and then you give the house away because the plumbing no longer works, right, right, or the stove doesn't work because I never fixed it. So let's get rid of the house. How about that? I'm going to give it to a friend of mine. Cool. Yeah, that, that's <laughs> in effect. That's what some of these proposals are saying is. Oh, we, we should either sell these or we should transfer them to state agencies that have a very, very strong history of selling and disposing them or right. at least managing, managing them in ways that are not friendly to our cause. And to the point of starving these budgets, we, unfortunately, we as the American public have done a very good job of making that damn fed the enemy. Ah, oh, goddamn fads. Blah, blah, right, blah. as you drive yeah. on highways and get right. your mail. And you and know. in the process, we, we it's this kind of intangible entity out there that we complain about. Right. And so when a congressperson or a senator comes and says, yeah, we cut the budget for this and this, and I'm a CPA, I'm probably as fiscally conservative as anybody in Congress. But there comes a point when you're no longer just cutting fat, you're cutting meat. And then when you're done cutting meat, you're cutting bone. And I read something where the Department of Interior right now is operating on the same spending power of what they had in 1999. Right. So here we are 16 years later, the demands on their lands for energy extraction, all the other resource issues, and the critical, we're talking sage grouse issues that could be staring us in the face, mule deer, pronghorn. Right. So, well, look at, I mean, wildland firefighting budgets alone yeah. right. is probably, uh, to me, this the most uh, kind of apparent and wrong-headed public policy if you want to have sustainable public land management. Right. And what you said, for the benefit of the audience, I'm going to explain what you're talking about, is the, the Forest Service goes to Congress and gets an appropriation for their budget each year. And Congress refuses to treat forest fires like other natural disasters, like floods and hurricanes and, and other stuff. Right. So when we have a terrible forest fire season in the West, the Forest Service budgets for road maintenance, for operations, for research, for study, for conservation, trails, trails yeah. campgrounds, all that budget gets pulled away and thrown over to the fight, forest fire, the wildfire fighting budget. So that's what you're referring to. That's exactly what I'm referring to. And so, I mean, it, it's management by crisis. Right. There's no right. way that you can plan for it. And, and really, it feeds into the idea that you're incompetent land managers, right? Right. right. Well, no you don't have... No tree left unburned. You don't, you don't I mean, have money for that campground. Well, that's your public access. So you don't, must not care about the public's use of your public lands. Therefore, let's get take them out of your domain. Yeah. Right. It, and when... What you asked me, and when you asked me the question, do I think this is a deliberate attempt? Yeah. 
if you would have asked me that five years ago, I probably would have been with Hal that maybe it wasn't intent, it's more of a fact. But having the the displeasure or opportunity, whatever term you want to use, to go to D.C. twice in the last year and, and testify on behalf of public lands. In April of this year, I was back there in front of the House Natural Resources Subcommittee on Public Lands. And I got called as a witness in favor of public lands. And then the other side called three witnesses as to why public lands are such a disaster. Um, and one of the, the witnesses for the other side, very sharp economist guy, gives this list of all the things that the federal government doesn't do well, that the states do better, which leads these people to say, well, let's give these lands to the state. And I'm like, you know what? He is right. The states do better on these issues. Why is the federal government not doing what the states are doing here? Uh, and I don't know if the Department of Interior was listening to that testimony or what, but then in early May, three weeks later, uh, uh, well, when the hearing's wrapping up, my hearing's wrapping up, the, some anti-public land guys are patting this economist on the back. Thanks, that's great. Yeah, blah, 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 blah. Three weeks later, the Secretary of Interior, Sally Jewell, comes before the main House Natural Resources Committee, not the subcommittee, and says, you know what? We're going to talk about better federal land management because some things have been pointed out we could improve. And it was pretty much the list this economist gave that three weeks earlier, that economist was set, extolled as, you are the genius, you're going to save us. So when the Secretary of Interior comes before that same committee and says, here are the things we should change to better manage the federal lands, she pretty much got run out on the street and the committee chairman and the subcommittee chairmen, you almost had to scrape them off the ceiling. They were so pissed off that she would even imply that we should do these things. Right. Whereas three weeks ago, they said they were the best ideas yeah. in the world. That's a little spooky, isn't it? And, and yeah. so yeah. when I see that, that causes me to say, you know what? These people have zero interest in better land management. That's the straw man argument. And the intent is to find a way to fulfill the prophecy that these lands cannot be managed. And then we're going to screw the public out of these lands. Right. And that's a pretty, that's a good story. I mean, I'm, I'm listening. Yeah. <laughs> and if you want me to, I'll, I'll use specific names and, and, and topics that were brought up. The, the economist said, it's crazy that, the federal government charges a royalty rate half of what the state of Texas charges. It's foolish that the Department of Interior charges a coal royalty rate that is pennies compared to what the states of Wyoming or Montana or somebody else would charge. It's foolish that the states will charge 10 to $20 per AUM, which for the listener is an animal unit per month. Right. In other words, what a cow-calf pair eats in uh, forage on lands. It's foolish that the states charge eight to 10 times what the federal government charges. It's foolish that we don't recognize the conservation values of these lands because the states will let conservation groups come and bid for these grazing leases if we find that the asset has more conservation value than it does per other productive value. So he went through this whole list of things. And as much as I was called by the other <laughs> side, when he's saying this, I'm nodding my head yeah. saying, you know what? <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to argue with him on that. That's right. good stuff. Right. And he got slapped on the back by the chairman and the sub-chairmans and the, the, everybody who had called him. And here comes the secretary with those same proposals, 
just chapter and verse, same exact thing. And she got run out of town. They they got their dark money meat grinding machines out there. Just started hacking on her. Yeah. And when, and I'm not saying that you got to agree with everything the Department of Interior does, but I am saying when these same people criticize how public lands are managed and then they get the opportunity to change it and they throw a big fit like a two-year-old and bitch and moan about how it's going to screw up this and screw up that they're not serious about public land right. yeah that's right they have the, to agree with that the, and, and so then i take that and i start looking at other examples and i don't want to be a conspiracy theorist i never have been but i can now start looking at a lot of other examples to say you know what there is an orchestrated attempt in Congress to make the public lands the wasteland. Yeah. And I, I guess for me, and you guys can see my blood pressure sure. right now, um, this is a cold dead hands issue for Randy Newberg. It, it, it is. It, it is for me too. It, I'm right there with you on that. And if, if anyone's listening and doubts the, the value these public lands hold, uh, I, I hope they'll come out and enjoy them and start building some, some attachment to them. And that gets me to another topic that I told you I wanted to talk about today. And on my hunttalk.com website, we're having these discussions. I mean, and as hunters, we reflect the political spectrum just like any group does. We're maybe a little bit more right of center. Um, so by default, we're probably going to give some of the conservative guys a pass and we're probably going to throw more, more darts at the guys a little bit to the left, but Hey, that's, that's just the nature of who we are. Um, and so when we talk about attempts to sell public lands and we talk about attempts to transfer them to the States, which is a disaster. And I did a complete podcast on that. I hope people listen to it. Some of the non-resident guys who live in Wisconsin or Tennessee say, why should I care? You guys charge me 30 times what you pay as a Montana resident. You restrict me to, well, in some states like Oregon, 2 to 5% of the tags, and New Mexico 6%, and Montana 10%. You guys hear any of that? You, you, oh, do, can you put yourself in their shoes and say, well... <laughs> deal with it guys that's not my problem you've disenfranchised me from the way i connect myself to these lands i think there's there are a couple ways of answering this i mean i see it from the national perspective all the time i mean and and there are legitimate gripes why in the world should i have to pay 13 times a resident rate to go somewhere else Maybe they're more liberal seasons. Maybe they're not. But what? Why in the world is this disparity? I'm, you know, I think non-resident hunters, no matter where they live, they're hunting as non-residents if they go out of their state, feel like they're the not only the the cash cow, but they're you know they're 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 subsidizing everybody else. Right. I, I used to work for Fish, Wildlife, and Parks in Montana, and I can say that one of the one of the constraints and one of the reasons that we have this has been the lack of residents wanting to pony up jackpot of a fair and really still really cheap sportsman's fees right. for licenses and for and for use and i and i think we've got to cross that i mean look what happened to fish wildlife and parks to try to get a really modest budget proposal through the legislature this year they got ground down yeah 
these were these were sensible, legitimate, modest proposals. Somewhere we've got to get the resident elk hunter, whether it's in Oregon or Montana. I mean, I'm saying elk. It could right. be fishing. It could be deer. It could be birds. Yep. To understand the true value of that resident license. Yeah, I'd like to see some of the non-residents come down, but what I'd really like to see is the gap between that disparity between the, what the residents pay and what the non-residents pay start to close because that's right. going to that's going to help fund the department to deliver the programs to manage the resource so we can kind of start stop talking about some of these crazy ideas about taking land managers out of land management. Yeah. And I, I'd like to say, I'm, I'm going to go a little bit abstract first. The idea that I, as a non-resident, would say that I've lost my connection to the American public lands because you're charging me too much to, for my hunting license, that's that's absurd because I, Andrew and I can maybe work out some way to close that gap in the non-resident things. But if I get rid of the public lands, I don't have any – I mean, what are we talking about? Right. right. We're talking about like, oh, well, we'll just get rid of the house because I don't want to argue with the guy who owns it about letting me into the living room. That's ridiculous. Um, that's that's uh, so spoiled that it's hard for me even to 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 touch it. You know, <laughs> um, we can argue about non-resident fees and all that stuff as long as we have the resource out there to argue over. That's a, I mean, we we just we're lost in 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 our luxuries of of opportunity. And so I agree totally that those that those gaps should be filled. But could we please just get a legislature? Could we please get a constituency, American hunters and fishermen, who say to their elected officials, the FWP is not some whipping boy that you go beat up every time you feel misunderstood yeah. we have a fine game agency we have fine game agencies in every state right and they need to be funded to the extent that we value what they do and what they do is incredibly valuable in the state of montana for bringing in revenue from hunters and fishermen and people who swim across the yellowstone river and people who marvel at the bluebird or listen to the turkey in the breaks. I mean, they are being. It's like we're we've got the this wonderful friend of ours, and we just go beat him up all the time when we <laughs> we and when we feel bad about ourselves today. Yeah, you know. So well, but but let's stick on this point just for a second okay. longer because you know one of the third rails of state agency sort of mindset is. Whatever we do, we don't want to go to the general fund. Whatever we do, we're right. a user-based resource. Yep. Right. It's a user pays. I think that's been a safe ground for state agencies for a long time because they know where the money's coming from, yep. and they're politically insulated in some ways. They can say, hey, this is, right. I mean, hell, this is the most conservative value you know, fiscal model, right? Yep. If you value it, you pay for it. We don't ask people who don't value it to pay for it. Right. We're, immune to politics. I think that's I think that's brilliant and has been. It's been a great way to get to where we are. I would argue that it's also held us back. It's it's created a closed subset of advocates for that resource so that when we have an issue like public land divestiture, right. we're not bringing in the people who want to go look at the bluebirds or swim the Yellowstone. Right. And who are enjoying public lands to really every depth that we as sportsmen and consumptive sport advocates use that public land. Right. Maybe this funding mechanism is a way to broaden the base of support for these cherished landscapes. Right. In your home state of Missouri is 
The classic example. Yes. What percentage? There's a small portion of the sales tax goes towards it funding. It is tiny, and I want, and I'll get the number wrong, but it's less than half of one percent. Right. Earmarked for Earmarked your fishing game agency. And that, if, if if your listeners are not aware of Missouri Department of Conservation, it is. It, it's a it's a wonderful agency that really brings in. They do a great job of managing wildlife resource, but they also do a great job of managing the non-game resource right. and bringing in every Missourian to enjoy and cherish the wild resource of that state. It is unbelievable. And and a lot of states are going through this struggle right now. Of we need more funding, as Andrew says, we have to expand the vested user to beyond just the hunters and anglers and <clears throat> this is gonna, i'm gonna get in trouble when i say this so don't you guys throw anything at me uh history is not polite to that effort and I, i'm gonna cite why and it pissed me off to no end when this happened in 1999 and 2000 we had a piece of legislation in congress called CARA, the conservation and reinvestment act and it was modeled a little bit after the Pittman-Robertson Act, where we pay a 10 to 11% excise tax on our hunting and, and guns and ammo gear. It was similar to Dingle Johnson, where we pay another excise tax on our fishing and, and boats and stuff. So here was the chance for, they want to call themselves non-consumptive, whatever term they want to use, for that user group to step up and start paying something. And their industry screamed, yelled, kicked, whined, sniveled, and killed that legislation. And so for someone who was in the middle of political battles at that time and was out there getting kicked in the teeth by the Montana delegation and, and staffers and other people, and I, and I made a lot of people mad by being a loudmouth on this. I'm like, this is great. You guys get yeah. your, this is yep. your chance to put your money where your mouth is. Yep. And it died. It died an ugly, brutal death. And those who say we want to have a voice prove that, they want to have a voice without having bested financial interest right. in that voice. And maybe I'm too cynical about it because I was too close to it. And here we are 15 years later, and maybe there's hope for it again someday. But as a hunter, as an angler, as a public land advocate, I look at that and say, the, golden, the, the, the door was open for you. Tell me how you want to open the door again to have this discussion. And, and I don't know what the answer is. It Maybe was a you low guys point. Hear it. No, it's a low point. Um, I asked, I, I questioned at that time. Um, I begin to question whether, when you're a non-consumptive user, quote unquote, whether my the kind of visceral, cold dead hands love of wildlife, wild spaces, and all is not shared by non-consumptive recreational users i i hope that's not true you know right i that, hope it's that, not also um but i i also promoted the predator stamp tim kaminsky a great biologist you know from he's in canada now he, he has come up with this idea years ago bring some non-game wildlife money in to support predators if hunters are not interested in doing that um the you should have heard the arguments people gave me against this, this fatalistic, it'll never buy them, it's never going to happen. 
I mean, all I was saying was, could people get a chance to buy a pretty stamp, you know? <laughs> and never. So I'm wor- I worry. I share your worries. I, I don't share the cynicism yet. I have two perspectives. One, yeah. every hunter and angler should go to the Outdoor Recreation Show in Salt Lake City. It's held twice a year. Right. Isn't it this week? It's this week. Um, it is the backpacking, mountaineering equivalent to the big industry shot show that the hunting community and shooting community has. I've gone a couple of times. It's fascinating to see what happens there. First of all, way happier people, much more colorful. They let their dogs and they drink beer uh, in the halls of this convention. So of course they're going to be happier. (laughs) A lot of the booths have tin cans, coffee cans on them with a kind of handmade sign, almost like a lemonade stand saying $5 for trailhead access there are innumerable little local campaigns being fought to fund some cherished piece of public access to hiking and and climbing climbing for sure access fund and you look in those coffee cans and there's very little money in there (laughs) really that community is really reluctant to fund cherished places for you i i can't I cannot answer that, but I'm, what I'm doing is getting a little bit at the question that you're raising. And unless people know the, the value of what they're getting in return for that investment, I think hunters and fishermen get it, despite your sense that we've got this great windfall of opportunity that was given to us by our predecessors. I think we do get it. I think that's why we keep buying licenses. Not enough of us do it, but we still do it. The non-consumptive users don't get it. I throw that out as an anecdote. This is the larger piece. And this is, I don't know that this is right, but I'm going to say it like it is. Sure. I think there's a huge misconception about public land when, unless you live in it, unless you use it as a hunter, where you recognize that you're going to cross acres and square miles of desolate ground to get at where the good stuff is. You value the whole of that experience. If you're driving down Interstate 70 through the Great Basin and you see this expanse of cheat grass, sun-baked rock, you right. say, why the hell should I care about this public land? And I think, I think we as hunters and fishermen do a pretty damn good job of understanding how landscapes function and where maybe we don't cherish them all as equals. Right. Every acre is equals, but we understand that they all go together. I think most of America does not. And yes. I think that's where that argument for dispensing of this great wasteland doesn't have any any fight. Resonance. Really? That's good understanding again. You know, uh, we're talking about blood understanding where the water comes from, yeah. where the snowpack is. Right. Um it's it's recre it's it's this I've written a lot about this. This is a hunter is an inhabitant on the landscape. Mm-hmm. A recreationist can be or usually is a visitor. Yeah. Right. And, and I, I use a different... That's a tough one. I use a different, a slightly different spin on that, Hal, is I, I divide it into participants and spectators. Right. We as hunters are participants in the, this natural world. The great wheel. Right. Right. In, in a way that if I was just a spectator to this process that I came to Montana or I went to the Grand Mesa of Colorado or the Ruby Mountains of Nevada, and I just looked at it, took a picture, maybe hiked in a little ways on a trailhead and said, well, wow, this is beautiful. This is nice to know it's here. 
I look at that way differently than the guy who lives in Elko, Nevada, or the person who lives in Grand Junction, right. Colorado, or yeah. the guy who lives in Missoula, Montana, and he goes out there, he acquires food from those lands, right. he has an attachment to those lands for so many things that are not able to be put into dollars and cents, not able to, that yeah. person does not just go home and rest well because they say, oh, it's nice to know those lands are there and that right. the rubies are beautiful with some snow on them today. The hunter goes there and he is, his sense of the entire picture that you refer to, Andrew, the, the whole is so keen because to hunt you need that keen sense of understanding of everything that's going on in the right. landscape. And so I often try to tell myself when I speak to some people, Randy, look, your lens is the lens of the participant. Right. Do not expect the spectator to look at your world the way that you do. It, it, and well, shouldn't we have, aren't we, we're going to need to translate some of that gut heart blood and soul attraction to the spectators too yeah. that's to me that's the challenge yeah. how, how do you get people to it's okay to be a spectator but right. how do you get them to to look partially or fully through the world through the world with a lens of the participant yeah yeah uh, when i when when i started mountaineering rock climbing i didn't come to ski until really late you know because i didn't i was I, I came to montana when i was 25 but we were climbers in, in the south, and that community was very connected to landscape. Um, Yvonne Chenard, all those people, mm -hmm. that's what they – they were very connected. There was a, a somewhat of an evolution in the recreation community that, that, that lost some of that connection, and the, it became a canvas for your activity rather than the, the being a place that you inhabited. Um, I don't know where, where that changed. That's a cha tangent for us here today, but I have, I have seen that. I don't know if it is a tangent, uh, because I think one say. of the things that you wanted to talk about, Randy, is, is how we portray this. How do we, how do we convert a spectator to a participant? And I think that's been one of the jobs of the outdoor media since we've been in existence. And I think, I think we've lost that imperative. I think we've lost a wow. little bit of that, that trail or that map to the trail. If I look at, re at really one big change, and you know, outdoor life has been around since 1898. Wow. We, and Field and Stream, and, you know, and these, the big national voices for sportsmen made a lot of these changes happen. We, right. we yeah. advocated, we were in the trenches, we were the mouthpiece and the voice for the, for the users. If you look lately, I'm going to take the last 20 years, but 15 and even 10 is probably a sharper focus. Pick up an outdoor life or a field and stream or a Peterson's hunting and look at the term, the pronoun I. So much of our coverage is egocentric, first person, sort of um, dominance of the experience. Compare that to the way that we even just, this is getting into that spectating, translating to participant mindset. I think the, the real charm of a lot of the outdoor writing and the, that resonated with me growing up was it was a sense of place and a sense of the chase, and it was a cherishing of the animal that we were pursuing. Exactly. And I think we've lost a lot of that. I'm not sure if it's television that's changed that. I don't know if it's 
social media that's changed that, but we now are conquering nature instead of participating in it. I, I think you're exactly right, Andrew. I, and this, I'm one of the biggest critics of outdoor TV and, and the network's probably going to fire me tomorrow morning when they hear this, but I feel that we in the media world, and I don't care if it's print, if it's TV, if it's digital, whatever, we have somehow traveled down a path, and I don't know where we took the right turn or the left turn that got us there, but I hear it all the time on my website. Randy, I, I don't read that junk anymore. Randy, I don't watch that junk anymore. It, it's so irrelevant to to me. My experience. Right. right. And, and you also do hear about, boy, I remember when Kurt Gowdy was the host of American Sportsman, or I remember reading Jack O'Connor, and I still look for articles from whoever. I think you're right, Andrew. It was about the experience. It was about involving yourself in a connected thing that was special it was about the wildlife um and now it is very much about me it, it's about what i've done what i've accomplished and and i often get critical of the hunting community for things that we do and then i stand back and look and i say are is our snapshot of what i just analyzed of the hunting community is any different than society as a whole I, I don't know that it is. I don't know that it is either. That's a good observation. I, I mean, if, if yeah. you were to go and read other special interest media or watch other special interest TV, you would see the same use of I, I, yeah. I, I, I think. And so I think we as hunting and hunters are a part of society. Sure. And so the trends and the, the demographics and the changes that affect society affect us. But that doesn't give us, I, uh, I'm not saying that's an excuse or that gives us a pass for, for doing what we do. One thing that hunting has always been noted for and has got us where we are is we've stepped forward and said, I don't accept that. Right. I'm going to change something different. Yeah. Whether it's, you know, back when someone says, we're going to tax ourselves as hunters right. and anglers, or we're going to enact legislation that protects endangered birds that are being used for women's hats the plume, uh, the plume trade was where yeah yeah it, so now look at what we've done as a community and i think this also probably has some larger parallels in the larger society but look at us as sportsmen we're no longer just hunters we're elk hunters uh, or we're yeah. turkey hunters right yeah. or we're pheasant hunters and we devote a lot of our I would say disposable time to raising money for those single species for yep. advocating for this sort of narrow bandwidth of enthusiasm. Yep. Right. And I think that closes us off to the larger picture of not only threats, but also opportunities in our world. We used to, um, I remember we did a, a big story on elk reintroduction in Tennessee for the Rocky mountain elk foundation, 2004, maybe three, I can't remember. But in the story, I think uh, a guy from Royal Blue Wildlife Management Area, he said, what's good for the wild turkey is good for the smallmouth bass. What's good for the elk is good for the, ceru uh, the cerulean warbler or whatever the warbler was they were interested yeah. at that point. He said, this is not about just an elk reintroduction. And it was a recognition of landscape scale conservation. And I thought that was such a, a beautiful thing to be able to put into one little paragraph of a guy who obviously gets it, can translate it to us. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to 
not argue against any of this, but I, I'm going to say perhaps it's irrelevant how people perceive or use the landscape if we are willing to step up and recognize that we need to conserve that landscape in the long run. I don't care if somebody wants to base jump off of Mill Creek Canyon. I think that's pretty cool, really. Yeah. I don't care if they want to GoPro themselves as they plummet to their, their, in their squirrel suit. I, I'm good with that. Uh, as long as we have Mill Creek Canyon. Yeah. In the, I'm speaking right. in the Bitterroots. Yeah. And as long as that incredible snowpack is pumping that cold, clear water down through Mill Creek, and I can walk up there and catch a cutthroat. Right. I'll, I'll dodge the squirrel suit guy <laughs> as I'm going up there fishing <laughs> and, and then shake his hand on the way out. Yeah. Um, are you going to shake his hand because he's using the same resource that you are and cherishes it or because he advocates and funds it the same as you? I want us to both advocate and fund it. But it's not happening. And that's where I right, think, sure, right. I, we all want what you want, Hal, but I think when, like the reality of it is at some point somebody's got to pay the bill. Right. And we're paying the bill. And I think it also, it, it probably distorts in a good way, but our, our commitment to that landscape, I guess what I'm saying is, no, I want Your the base jumper to also pay for I it. Not too. as a punitive thing. Yeah, I do too. But I think as a, because it really invests them in it. I do too. And as a person who probably I burn an awful lot of ammunition and shoot guns is you know i mean i mean I, I, guns are a major thing in my life and ammo um pitman robertson i mean that is the brilliance of pitman robertson right and and we've got to somebody's got to come up with something similar right yeah. we i mean pitman robertson in the last fiscal year the allocation to the states was $808 million. Wow. That is how much the tax on hunting, shooting, ammo, and other equipment right. got brought back to yeah. the states. So you go to these, if they call themselves non-consumptive users, and you say, what What do you guys have? You, you guys outnumber us in total user numbers by a function of five or a factor of maybe eight or ten can can you guys come up with 800 million and if you guys outnumber us 10 to one that's one tenth of the burden on the each of you yes they can you bet yeah and, and so how do we get there and I, I don't know that i have the answer but as i reflect on hunting at its basic core hunting is still about food to me, me i grew up hunting was about food it it, and it always will be till the day they put me in the ground. Yeah, don't get me wrong. If there are two bulls standing there and one's a humongous big six point and one's a spike, I'm going to shoot the big six point. I, yeah, and, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that probably goes back through our DNA to yeah. wh however far you want to measure I'm going to go back to that model when my children are grown and, and feeding themselves. Until then, I'm, I'm going to take the younger one or the cow. <laughs> <laughs> but because hunters use the landscape whether public or private for acquisition of such a basic need as food and they use it to participate in such a primal activity that as much as we can deny that and in the last 30 or 40 years there's been this social construct that we're not supposed to be hunters right when you can't deny however many eons of evolution that have if you're on this planet you came from hunters Right. There's no way around that, right. I, I don't think. So 
because we use those public lands for a basic need of food and for the expression of our of our ingrained DNA to go and be a hunter, I think we look at those public lands or, or even yeah. private lands. Yeah. We look at them differently. Right. Yep. They have a deeper attachment to us. And I don't know how you get the, how you get someone to to look at it that way. Boy, I don't either. I mean, I remember the first time I ever flew across the country. I was glued to the window of the airplane. Yeah, me too. And what I was noticing was the landscape through a hunter's eyes. I remember seeing some of the less hills around the uh, Missouri River in Nebraska. Like, oh my God, does that look gamey? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Steve Rennell and I did a podcast that was put out about a week ago, and we got to talking about trapping because we both trap. And we both were talking about when we drive down the road, we don't see a bridge abutment. We see a place for a mink or muskrat set. That's it, right. When I'm, right. when I'm driving across Wyoming, my wife drives. She's like, you're going to kill us right. because I am the pronghorn nut to the highest degree. Right. And I'm making note of every little feature, every little landscape, the changes that I've seen since the last time. Yep. Because I'm seeing the world as someone who wants to go out there, express my DNA as a hunter, right. and eat some of that pronghorn. Yeah. If you travel with people who, who don't hunt, when you picking out that that horizontal line of the back of a pronghorn or a deer in the far <laughs> thing and they say well what where is it but the, the that horizontal line is where my eye goes first in the right. forest or in the in on the prairie either one you go there it is right and that it comes a, because you are a hunter all it, my life it, it, yep when we package meat nobody's gonna butcher our meat i mean it's like right. that's a sacred thing that's yeah. either yep we always write on the packages the drainage. Oh, really? And part of it is I've got kids who are coming up. They're hunting. We want it. So, so if it's Merlin, it's M.M. Willow Creek. Mule deer roast or you know, shank meat or whatever. So I know when I'm going to cook it, what the cut is. But Merlin knows he fed the family. But we all know where that thing came from. Right. And to me, it's, it really enriches our experience. And I think that it's that level of understanding where your life, life comes from. Somehow we got to figure out a way as hunters to include other people in that. I know it's right. so personal and sacred to us. I really feel like that's, there's some answer there for having other people beyond, we're a pretty damn small little group, right. advocate for these cherished landscapes. I don't know what that is. I'm going to think a lot about it. Do, do you think that food, that the hunting community almost has to put it in reverse and go back to the intersection where food was the primary connection to hunting? From the standpoint of there are a lot of people right now in our society who are interested in where their food comes from, right. the quality of the food, all of that, and that's a place for us to re-intersect with a larger audience or have we as hunters gone so far down the the gadget gizmo me the, the whatever antler chase that we can't get back to the intersection where it's the food and the experience i think that's where it starts i think i think the farther we get from that the harder our case is to make but i also feel like it's a that's kind of an abstraction that as much as people are interested in where their food comes from told they experience it i i think it, it elevates our stature in that world in the larger society but i i think it's hard to communicate it with the intensity that we feel it 
to somebody who's not there. I, I, I would agree. But it, does that bring them I, to, I think it does. to hunting? I it think can, it does. It can. And I think I, it opens the yeah. door. And I, I'm I'm in this too. Uh, I, I guess it's pretty clear now. I'm fairly in, an individualist. Uh, <laughs> I don't care why a person does a certain thing, you know, right. so much. I think that intersection is a great place to translate what we're talking about to people who don't understand it or or don't necessarily share it yet. Um, but I and I've had this has been impossible for me. I'd, I'd be interested in what y'all think because people say, but I don't support that trophy hunting. I don't like that. And I say, well, let me just slow down just for a second, because when I don't do it that much myself, but I'm not immune to the to siren call of a big old <laughs> mule deer, um, but to the in utter inhabitation of landscape required by tracking and taking one big muley off of, say, somewhere back in the... Uh, Rocky Mountain front or in the yep. breaks, you know, you say, I'm taking this animal. I've never, and that is an incredible art form and, right. and immersion in yeah. landscape. It's a, I used to call it the, the ultimate apprenticeship to place, right. you know? And um, so I, I don't, I'm unable to translate that at that intersection to the people that don't understand it. I've never been able to translate that. I think there's something here that I, I think the food is a really important cultural exchange that we can give baton if you want to look at it that way but i think here's another thing and we hunters have gotten away from the essential democratic really american experience that we're participating in if you think about the moment you notch your tag you're converting a public resource to a private one right uh-huh. Where else in America can you do that where else in the world can you do that there, right? there's no activity i'm aware and of it's only through your work your tracking, your shooting, your woodscraft, that you're able to take a public resource and privatize it. Right. To me, that makes that piece of meat that you've obtained from the public, the public, right. pri- it's priceless. Right. It is such a sacred sacrament. Right. I, it's I, interesting. I've never thought about I, that. I agree with it completely. We're going to touch on one more topic, and I'm just going to confess, and I'm going to let you guys talk, because you're both writers. Uh, before we turned on the mics, we, we, I think, Andrew, you made a small observation about how media we've went from, the, and we touched on this briefly earlier, about how we used to express the experience and that led us into being advocates for policy, for landscapes, for conservation. And now it's more about how-to, gadgets, gizmos, calls, weapons, long-range, da-da-da-da-da-da. The list goes on and on. I'm just going to give the admission that in the hunting TV world, we are the greatest sinners of that problem. You guys in the print world, is that endemic to the print world? Let me start it because I sit at that desk. I look at... I mean, we say outdoor life is a publication. It's not anymore. It's a you know, it's a media brand. Most of our work is not in the print world anymore. Right. But that's still our flagship. Print pages have reduced in number. Our frequency has changed. It's gone down. So I look at the real estate that's available to me, and I say, okay, another how-to rut feature, or a passionate advocacy piece for a conservation issue. In every single audience study that we've ever had, people want to read the, another rut piece. Really? Every time. 
and and that's wow. and that's really that's I'm surprised to hear myself say this because I want to read the advocacy piece. Those are actually to me they're more fun to write. They're new. How many times can we write about ruling the rut yeah. in a different way? I mean, it's a hell of a challenge. Let me tell you, as a, as a magazine editor, <laughs> it, we've gotten kind of the skinny into the wedge on that topic. But I look at it as I said this yesterday to Hal. It's it's vitamins or it's painkillers. And nobody wants to take their vitamins. Right. Maybe a better way is it's vitamins or it's candy. Mm. People want to eat candy. And the rut package is candy. People want to see pictures of big bucks. They want a little quick-hitting how-to piece. They don't want to take their vitamins, which is the long read, building the case for engagement on a conservation issue. And I'm just telling you, that's the way the world looks for me. Wow. That, that's interesting that you guys do those. Well, I mean, not interesting. I'd expect you guys do those reader surveys, but the responses that way, that is, which I suppose makes, if you were an outdoor writer who wanted to talk and write about the issues of conservation and long-term vision issues, there's less real estate for you to fill. There is, and Hal can speak to that. I mean, that's really Hal's stock and trade is is personalizing and sharpening the imperative of conservation issues. And he's brilliant at it, but there's not a lot of room for that anymore. In fact, I would argue that the outlets that are open to that kind of journalism and that kind of advocacy are perspective-based advocates themselves. So they're not necessarily getting an independent voice about a conservation issue. They're getting an agenda-based perspective piece, which really just talks to the already engaged constituency the choir. The choir. Yeah. Wow. That's... <laughs> and I don't look at it... I mean, it, it can be depressing if you look at it that way. I actually look at it as I've got work to do. Yeah. Because what we have to do is make those vitamins appealing to eat. Make we got to make them candy. T- taste like candy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. And they can be, of course. I mean, we've done it over and over. You, 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 you give people an adventure... Um, you know, when, when years ago, uh, NWF though, sent me up there to do the Mulchatna river. Um, I adamantly at field and stream, I adamantly said, this is not a story about a big mine that's going to ruin everything. It's a story about what is there right now. And it is, it is a place where, where everything that we value as sportsmen, yes, everything we value as human beings, you know, the basics, the, the meat, the salmon, the porcupine herd, the uh, the Mulchatna itself, clean water, everything is intact in place. Here it is, and this is the adventure we're having in here. And um, tangentially, as you finish this story, if you don't make your voice heard, eh, it's not going to be here anymore. Yeah. But first, there has to be that incredible yep. connection to place and sp- adventure and meat and blood and cold water you know uh mobile delta same thing you know i saw this incredible documentary on the mobile delta and really it was just a it's, it's a fishing show um ben rains used to be the reporter at the mobile register made this thing it's awesome and it's just people taking kids out fishing cat fishing yeah you know that's when you talk about that, Hal, and you guys probably get some form of feedback about how certain, how popular certain things are in the TV world, we get ratings by episode, by week. Uh, with my big hunt talk 
com website, I get a lot of anecdotal feedback. And I know my show, I'm kind of a different duck out there. I'm, yeah, <laughs> I'm sure some people are like, how the hell did he get a TV show? Uh, and my one friend in Minnesota would say, Randy, the fact you have a TV show is living proof to how far a line of bullshit can get you in America. <laughs> but uh, I, the, the episodes that we get some of our highest ratings on are ones where we don't kill anything or we maybe shoot a small animal. But it was not the classic man versus nature discussion. It wasn't even man versus man discussion. It was man versus himself playing out in the context of a wild landscape. And I often scratch my head and say, why is that? And I don't know if it's because it's a scarcity of what's available out there in content or if it's just there's that much connection to, yeah, I've been there and done that. Right. I've froze my butt off yeah. up in the Madison range. Um, and TV is a little bit easier medium to show that to the American person. Now I think Americans right. read less and watch more. Um, so I, I don't know how you, how you get to some of those things, how you – and we're all trying. I think all right. of the reason the three of us are so passionate about this is we're trying to penetrate that message and make those yeah. connections. Um, I don't. I don't know if I have an answer to how to do it, though. I just. I'm not sure. No. No answers. Um, effort. Yeah. You know, no answers. Yeah. Elbow grease and sweat and tears. Yeah. And I think though, hunting, fishing, spectacular experience personal or party happens in a place. And I think that's one thing that we share. Right. Every one of your listeners, every one of my readers, every one of your readers, they're tied to a place. You know, I, as an editor, I refuse to run a piece that is generic. I want to, I'd like to have a county and a township if it could. We've, right. We have to base our things that we do in a place. Is that, why, so, is that why I have rooms full of maps? Because I'm exactly. attached to place? We all do. We, we all do. All do. Yeah. We are, we are place-based huh. <laughs> participants. And, and I guess if I have to just end with something, it's that. It's like if we keep going back to that place, then you know, to the theme of the show is defensive place, I think. That's the answer. And, and I'd, I'd like to, to say when I said effort, sweat, tears, whatever, I, that's a tiny part of it. I, 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 I kind of misspoke. What I'm talking about is celebration of place. I'm talking about joy. Yeah. And, and I'm talking about, you know, not, oh, my God, it's going away or any of this. I'm talking about, man, this is the best thing ever. Celebrate it. Celebration. Yeah. And in celebration, you will defend whatever it is you celebrate. Right. Celebrate it first. Yeah. So with that, we're going to wrap this up because I've already imposed on you guys too much. And we give every guest a parting comment. So Hal, we're going to go in reverse here. You got any last comments you want to leave the audience with? My last comment is that um, we got uh, we have the best nation in the world we're living in it we're the participants in it we're the people who are responsible for keeping this ship through these various rocky seas big storms around we've held them down it before we can do it again just show up participate and be incredibly happy with what we've done and where we are now make sure we don't crash that ship
Great, simple advice. Andrew, you got any closing comment? I mean, it kind of riffs on what Hal said, but I, you can't put a price on what we do. Nope. In, in that way, you know, the, the hard-eyed economists or maybe accountants among us would say, well, it has no value. I look at it as it's priceless. That's right. it, completely. Yeah. Well, I and I gave a presentation Tuesday night, very similar to what you just said. You weren't even there, so I I don't know if I plagiarized you or you plagiarized me, but that's exactly what I said. Is the reason that a lot of these I'll call them privateers or whatever you want to call it value what we have is because it's immeasurable it cannot be valued and i'm a i'm an accountant i'm a cpa by trade and we have in our society we like cpas and economists to put everything into terms of numbers so it's easy to evaluate but those are the most cold inappropriate non-relevant irrelevant measurement criteria to what we're talking about what we're talking about is stuff that are cultural connections, generational connections, attachment to place, attachment to land, our sense of responsibility for doing what our parents, grandparents did for us, and that's making sure the Cuyahoga River didn't start on fire again, making sure that the Clean Water Act got passed, making sure that the clean air, that, that's what we stand for that's what these public lands represent that's that feeling of americanism is what drives us and they try to put some financial statistical numeric value on that first of all it pisses me off that they do that right. and second of all when we as hunters start following that path in engaging in that argument we completely discount all that we have for us. And it's a sucker's bet. To go down that path and try have an argument with people who, for them, this, isn't, this is a belief system for them. This isn't facts and, and, and logic. This is, this is what I believe, the same as, as you know, my grandma was a Methodist and you were not going to convince her that Catholics had any validity in the world. No that was her belief. Yeah. Right? The same with these people. To go and have a financial or economic argument with them, is you're not going to win that because their belief system is such that I don't need facts, I don't need anything, this is what I believe, and I'm going to take the safety of that. So when we go down that path, as much as, yeah, we, we have a great economic argument for what hunting and fishing and public lands provide. It, it's an argument that can stand up with that. But where we win is forcing them to come over and have the argument with us about what you mentioned, Andrew, that this stuff is invaluable. What you mentioned, Hal, that this is something to be celebrated. This is America. This is who we are when we're at our best. Yeah. And so, anyhow, we could, boy, we could keep going on this stuff. We we didn't even get to all of my points, guys. <laughs> but uh, anyhow, folks, I want to thank you for listening. If if you want more detail about any of these podcast episodes, go to hunttalk.com. Um, if uh, you want 
all of the Randy Newberg platforms, whether it's the podcast, the website, the TV show, our downloads of, of episodes, go to randynewberg.com. And uh, I think most people can figure out where to find Andrew at outdoorlife.com yep. and Hal at fieldandstream.com. You bet. You guys in want- various places around the web. Okay. <laughs> you guys don't want to give them your cell phones or anything. I'd be happy to. I mean. <laughs> As you probably figured out, mine doesn't really work. Yeah. Oh, I love that, Hal. I wish I could be at that uh, comfort level with your state of technology. But anyhow, <laughs> thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. We're going to, you're not, this isn't a one and done for you guys. So if yeah, I call we'll you back. up at some trade show and, we're, and we do it again, uh, we'll just take off from, from where we stopped here. Good. So. Yeah, we've got a lot more to talk about. Yeah. All right. Randy Newberg Unfiltered. You heard it here. Thanks for listening.